begins September 9th. I think that's all the announcements I have for today. So if you have a Bible with you, we are continuing our series and what Emmaus is all about. This is the second week. We started with Creed, and today we're talking about community. So if you want to open your Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. And I'm going to read it. And I might as well address this. I always read out of the CSB because I can't find an ESV Bible anymore in my house. So if you have an ESV Bible, I'm sorry. I looked for one this week and I can't find any more. So if you have an ESV, that's why my sounds a little different. I didn't know people realized this, but somebody afterwards told me, you're known as the person who doesn't preach from this one Bible. I didn't think anybody listened while I, no, I'm just kidding. Um, so Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37 in the CSB. If you have a phone, you can actually pull it up. Okay, verse 32. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. This then was distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and, bought the, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's go before the Lord in prayer before we get going. And one thing I do want to note that we're going to pray for is we're just going to pray for Maui and all the people who have suffered there. And so we're going to lift them up in our hearts. Let's go before the Lord in prayer together. Father, we come before you recognizing we do not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from your mouth. And the scriptures here before us are words that have come from your mouth. You have spoken to us in these words, and by them we have eternal life, because in them we meet Jesus Christ. So, Father, there might be many of us here today who come week after week to church, and it becomes just kind of a routine. But, Father, we pray as we open up your word again today, that you would impress upon us the importance of this, that we live on the word of God, that we are to draw our breath from our creator and that he has spoken to us in his word. So we pray that even this morning, you would continue to give us new life. Father, we pray for those who are here who do not know Jesus Christ, that they would see Jesus for the first time and understand what he has done for them. And oh Lord, our hearts go out for those in Maui who have suffered under wildfires. Many have lost their homes. Many have lost their lives. Many have lost loved ones. And Father, we, we don't always understand why these things happen, but we know that you care for the brokenhearted, that your mission is to redeem all things, 
that there will be no more heartache, no more suffering, no more tears. But now there are tears and there are pain. And so we just pray for all the people in Maui that you would be a comfort to them. We do pray that the church there would rise up and serve their neighbors well. We pray that they would rally around those who have lost everything, who have lost possessions, who have lost those that they've loved, and, and come around them and show the love of Jesus. Oh, Father, if there, if there are ways that we can help, we pray that you would reveal that to us. We just pray for them that you would be near to them. And now, Lord, we pray as I preach that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would fill this congregation with your spirit. May you be pleased to dwell with us even this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in high school, I made a decision I will always regret, didn't we all? I decided to quit sports to get a phone. This was way before the iPhone. This was back in 2002 when the hot phone on the block was the phone right behind me. I don't know if you remember that phone. If you're a little older like me, you might remember it had one game called Snake, which was very addicting. But I quit sports literally to get that phone. At this point, high schoolers were just starting to get phones as individuals. And so all my friends were getting phones, and I wanted to get in on this new era. But my parents rightly and wisely were like, uh-uh, not happening. So because all my friends were getting one and I felt completely out of loop, I didn't want them calling my parents' house to say, do you want to hang out? That era was over. I needed a phone. So I decided to quit sports so I could get a phone. But it really wasn't about the phone. It was about the fellowship. It was about the community. I I didn't really want to be left out of anything. I wanted a phone. And many young people here are probably like, hey, mom, dad, like, listen to him. I want a phone too, right? It was about the fellowship. It was about the community. I always regret quitting sports because really I had my community in the sports teams and I quit that to get a phone to have community with others. I tell this story to highlight that community is something we all desire. It doesn't matter whether you're an extrovert or introvert. It's something we all desire. Yet the reality is more than half of Americans report feeling lonely. Almost 60% say that they eat meals all alone almost all the time. Loneliness often contributes to feelings of pain, disappointment, depression. Researchers have even linked it to physical illness and cognitive decline. Loneliness is a quiet devastation. And if the stats are true, half of you in here feel lonely regularly or all the time. Mother Teresa said this about loneliness. There is much suffering in the world, physical, material, mental, but the greatest suffering is being lonely, feeling unloved, having no one. I have come more and more to realize that it is being unwanted that is the most terrible poverty that any human being can experience. The rise of loneliness is somewhat ironic in our era because in one sense, we are way more connected to everyone than ever before. You can talk to anyone thousands of miles away in a second on FaceTime. You can chat with someone who lives in another state through social media. You can email them in seconds. You You can talk to anyone almost. It seems that we are more connected to everyone 
but in community with no one. So the connection to everyone doesn't mean we're in community. Actually, the connection with all these people might mean that we're spread too thin. We don't have time to be in community with those that we are close to or those that we live near. And I think if you actually read the stats, what's interesting is there's a lot of myths around loneliness, and guess who's the most lonely? You might think it's older people. You might think it's people not in church. No, it's actually young people, especially college students who are reporting they are very lonely. They don't have anyone to hang out with. So it's especially young people, high schoolers, college students who are saying they are lonely. Well, this morning we're continuing our series on the purpose of Emmaus. We exist to declare and display the gospel. This is defined by three core components. And last week we heard about creed. This week we're talking about community. Next week we're talking about commission. And I want to paint a picture of the type of community that we want to build here at Emmaus, that we want to embody here at Emmaus. And I just want to say up front, I'm going to talk about these things, but Emmaus, I was just thinking about this morning, I'm just so encouraged by the community here. And I think we are doing so well on community. I just want to encourage you and say, thank you so much for pouring in. And I know, I realize as I say that, some of you might feel like, man, I don't have that community. We still have work to do, yes, but for the most part, I'm so encouraged with how you all pour yourselves out for one another. So I just want to say that as we begin. But as we go through this, we're going to look at three points, the what, why, and how of community at Emmaus. The what, why, and how of community at Emmaus. The first thing we need to define is what are we speaking about when we say community? We talked about creed, what we believe. What is community? What are we talking about? How, we can, how can we describe it? What should it look like? How, what should it feel like even when you come in here on Sunday mornings? Or what should it feel like when you go to community group? What does community at Emmaus look like? Community in the sense that I'm speaking of is not simply friendship. Friendship is great, but we are seeking something deeper, something more committed here at Emmaus. And we can, it can be defined by two descriptors. We seek for covenantal community and gospel-centered community. Covenantal and gospel-centered community. You can put this in this little phrase. We covenant together at Emmaus to build a gospel culture. So it's those two terms that I'm going to be explaining here in the what is it. Covenant and gospel culture. We can see this type of covenantal community was practiced in the early church. And a covenant is simply a commitment. That people in the early church made a commitment with certain people. In Acts 2.42, it says that the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, creed, what we believe, and to the fellowship, community. So they devoted themselves. That's a covenant, right? They made a commitment to one another in terms of what to believe, what to teach, and how they got along together. In our passage, Acts 4.32, what does it say? It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belongs to him was his own, but they had everything in common. That's a covenant commitment to one another, so much so that they shared their possessions. Jump down to verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them 
and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. Note, this is not simply friendship. They were of one heart and one soul. This describes from the Old Testament the true Torah community who will share all their their possessions. And not only that, but it describes what philosophers said was true community at the time. One heart and one soul. They were sharing their possessions with one another. They were committed to one another. At Emmaus, we simply call this a covenant. We have covenant membership. We covenant with one another. Though most relationships outside of marriage require little in terms of commitment, at Emmaus, we ask you to covenant with one another, to be devoted to one another, because this is what we find in the scriptures. You covenant with others in the church. And this marks our relationship with each other as different than the rest of our relationship. You have made a unique covenant to the person sitting to your right or left or behind you or in front of you, if they are members here. You have uniquely committed yourself to these people, which is different than other people. And yes, if you're married, you've uniquely covenanted yourself to your spouse. But notice this does mark these relationships as distinct. So I have to ask you, do you view the relationships at Emmaus as unique? Or are they like every other relationship that you have? At Emmaus, we're trying to get to something different here, where we covenant and we commit to one another, so much so that Acts 4.32 would be true of us. If someone's in need, you're willing to give up your possessions for them. That is a unique commitment, and that's what we're after. Does how you spend your time each week reflect that covenant commitment? This is not to say you can't have other friends. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying you can't hang out with anybody else. And maybe in this room, you need more friends outside of the church, right? But we are saying that we have made a covenant with one another. So at Emmaus, we covenant together. But why? Why do we do that? We covenant for a purpose to build a gospel culture. This is actually still part of the first point of what it is. This speaks to the nature of the community we try to cultivate here, a culture that is marked by the fruit of the Spirit. So how can we describe a gospel culture? Well, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We want to be characterized as a community by these virtues, that when people walk into our congregation, they see the fruit of the Spirit. Ray Ortland speaks of how churches need to not only have a gospel doctrine, but also a gospel culture. Gospel doctrine and gospel culture should come together. And so often, I was actually just talking to someone before the service, you find churches where they're strong on one and weak on another. And it's difficult sometimes to find churches where you have the gospel doctrine and the gospel culture come together. But that is the way it was meant to be. So, for example, we believe in the atonement of Christ. We believe in his sacrifice for us, where he suffered on our behalf, which creates a culture of what? Sacrifice. We sacrifice for one another. Like we see in our passage, we lay down our life on behalf of others. We share our possessions, our time, our resources, our energy. At Emmaus, I'm so encouraged. I see you serving in this way. You're sacrificing 
And that tells me you believe in the atonement of Christ. But as he sacrificed himself for us, so we lay our, our lives down for others. And if you come into a church and there's no sacrifice, you've got to ask, do you believe in the atonement of Christ? Because we are to follow him. Or we believe in the doctrine of justification, where we are declared right with God. And this creates a culture of what? Inclusion. Where all, all people are welcome because you are made right, not by what you do, because what has God has done in your own life. This is not a church defined by a political party. This is not a church that's defined on how you educate your kids. This is not a crunchy or non-crunchy church. This is not what we're about. We believe in the doctrine of justification, which compels us to put aside these secondary differences and come together. We have a culture of inclusion. Everyone is welcome because we've done nothing to earn our salvation. And if we are excluding people, we've got to ask, do you believe in the doctrine of justification? We believe in the doctrine of reconciliation, which creates a culture of peace, of peace. We won't, we try not to be jerks to one another or to other Christians. We take seriously how we use our social media. We take seriously how we speak about other Christians and non-Christians. We seek to be kind to one another and to listen to one another before we speak. Man, we live in a polarized age. I know everyone says that, but it's true. You just watch people are separating, separating. We want to be a culture of peace where we come together and we shine as lights on a hill where we're different because we believe in reconciliation, that God has made us one with him and one another so we can come together and be a peaceful community. We believe in the doctrine of glorification, which produces a culture of hope. We are not a pessimistic people who are wringing our hands about culture and like, oh no, what's going to happen? We believe God is recreating everything. We're a happy and hopeful people. We're not a people who are worried about the demise of culture, but we're hopeful that Jesus Christ is going to come and redeem all things. We believe in the doctrine of glorification. It is going to get better. So we have hope, and we're happy, and we're joyful. That's the fruit of the Spirit that we want to see at Emmaus. We don't want just gospel doctrine. We want gospel culture. At Emmaus, we covenant together to build this gospel culture. We make it our aim. We don't do it perfectly, but we make it our aim. So that's the what of community. We covenant together to build this gospel culture. Now let's cover the why. I have three points here, subpoints. First, why do we do this? Just very simply and basically, you were created for community. You were created for community. This is true, again, as I said earlier, whether you're an introvert or extrovert, whether you feel like you're socially competent or not, you were made for community. God created us to be in relationships with other people. Humans are biologically, as some people have said it, hive creatures. We gather together. We like to gather together and create things and be with one another. What happened at the fall, it disrupted this community between Adam and Eve and from peoples and from nations. And you can just go out and out and out. And all of the wars and the fightings and the issues that we have between one another, that's the result of the fall. Enmity and hostility grew until violence covered the whole earth. The good news is that Jesus redeemed us for a new community. 
He came to make a people out of a people who are not a people. He came to restore our relationships with him and with one another. Like the Israelites, he didn't bring us through the Red Sea so we could wander alone in the wilderness. No, he brought us so that we could go through the wilderness together and enter the promised land. God created us for community, and Jesus redeemed us for a new community. We don't want you to be in community because we sat down as elders, as leaders, and said, oh, here, we have got a good idea. Let's have people get together. No, we want you to get together in community and be in community because God created you for this, and you will be most happy and most flourishing if you press into that and not away from it. So, Creed, community, and commission, we believe these things are taught in the scriptures. This is what creates this gospel culture. You are created for community. Second, community is non-optional for Jesus' followers. Community is non-optional for Jesus' followers. You can't be connected to the triune God without also being connected to his people. You can't be one with the Father without also being one with his children. John puts it this way in 1 John 4, 20 through 21. If anyone says, I mean, John's just like black and white. Here it is. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. If anyone says, I love God, but he doesn't love his brothers and sisters, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he sees, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother and sister. It's, it's very clear. The New Testament says, if you are a Christian, you need to be in community. And if you're not in community, we have to question whether you love God. And to love someone, guess what? You have to be with them. You have to come. You have to gather together with other believers. You can't just say, I love them in thought but I never really want to be with them. You have to gather together. In Acts 2.46, it says, day by day, they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Did you hear that? Day by day. Like every day, they're getting together. Getting together was not an interruption to their regular life. Regular life was an interruption to their getting together. They wanted to get together so much, they were like, let's do this tomorrow, again and again and again. And day by day, they're coming to the temple or they're going into the homes. They couldn't get enough of one another. And what you see in Acts, guess what? There's like zero commands about getting together. They wanted to do it because it was life-giving for them. It was life-giving. They just, it's not like Peter was like, hey guys, come on, let's really get together here. We, we, need, a, we need a band together. There's a lot of stuff going on. He couldn't stop the people from getting together. They were gathering day by day. I love this line from St. Benedict. I think it comes from St. Benedict when he says, some of you need to stay put in order to get somewhere. Some of you need to stay put in order to get somewhere. It's very easy to have a problem with a church and to leave. Say, ah, no, the millennial Gen Z generation, we deal with problems by blocking people and unfriending them, right? We're just like, we're out, we're out. Some of us need to stay put to get somewhere. It's on the crucible of community that we most often grow. So it's so it's so and 
I was just thinking about this this week. In, in the modern world, it's so difficult because it's so easy just to go to another church down the street or to move somewhere, and then suddenly you're in a brand new community. And, you know, sometimes that's justified. That's okay. But in the early church, this is not the way it worked. You stayed put. You were in this community whether you liked it or not, and you got to know one another. And I think that's how they grew so much because they actually knew one another. If you give up too quickly, the growth won't come. It only comes endurance and pressing through. So often, we're going to talk about this later, but you come to a church and you're like the first six months, it's like honeymoon. It's like, this church is amazing. Then you get to know people. You're like, okay. Every church has its flaws, right? We are people. But the point is, keep going on. Keep pressing through because that's where you're going to grow. And again, I'm just, I look out here and I see people who have been here at Emmaus since the beginning. You have pressed on. Because you know, through hard times, through things that were not easy, you said, I'm going to be here. I'm going to stay here because I know that's how growth will come. Man, that's a commitment. And I'm so proud of you who have done that. And I know some people have left and they've left for good reasons. I'm not trying to cast judgment upon them. But that's huge. And that speaks volumes. And I'd love to stand up here 10 years later and to see a lot of the same faces here. I know people move around but see a lot of the same faces. And guess what? We're going to know each other really well, and there might be some issues, but that's where the growth comes. Because it's easy to love people you don't know very well. It's hard to love people who you know their warts and their wrinkles and who they really are. But that's who Jesus has called us to love. He loves us in that way. He knows us. He knows everything about us, and he still loves us. And we're called to pour out that love to others. So it's just a call to, like, stay. Now, if you're not even a member here, maybe you're a member of another church, stay at that church. Stay there and grow and grow. The third reason we covenant together to build a gospel culture is because gospel doctrine without gospel culture is powerless. I alluded to this earlier. As Tyler said last week, doctrine minus love is math that does not add up. Doctrine minus love is math that does not add up. Sound doctrine without a gospel culture is worthless. It's worthless. In our passage, Acts 4.33, it's sandwiched right between 32 and 34. So you look at your Bible. I want to show you something here. Notice what happens in verse 33, right between 32 and 34. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. So what's, what's on the other side of that? They were giving away their possessions. They were giving away their possessions. And then what's in the middle? The powerful testimony of the resurrection. Actually, in the Greek, I hate saying this, but in the Greek, there's actually a four linking verses 33 and 34 that's not often in your English Bible. For there was not a needy person among them. So you see what he's doing here. The success of their evangelistic efforts related to the resurrection was directly linked to them sharing their possessions. There will be no, let's put it negatively, there will be no power in our resurrection message if we do not have a covenant community that shows off our gospel culture. It will be empty of power. Why? Because they're preaching about the resurrection of new life. And if you look at a community and you're like, that's dead. The message means nothing. 
And you've got to ask, you've got to ask are, and I'm speaking about the American church more generally, not Emmaus, is our evangelistic efforts suffering because people come in our church and they can't see resurrection life? We've got to be able to combine the two and bring them together. They've got to be able to come in here and say, there's life here. So I believe their message. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because I see resurrection life in the church. We see this reality all over the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 13.2. If we have prophetic powers, if we understand all mysteries, if we have all knowledge, if we have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, you can finish it. We're nothing. We're nothing. At Emmaus, we value our sound doctrine, our creeds, our historic faith. We are those that seek to understand the mysteries of the Trinity. We seek to be gospel-centered. We preach expositionally. We hold outdated views of sexuality and gender. We have a strict way of going about how we do church. But the New Testament says, if we have all those things and we don't have a gospel culture, we're nothing. It's worthless. So you don't have this middle piece of community. Creed is done. It doesn't matter. Get the creed out of here. It doesn't even matter. In one way, it doesn't even matter what you believe because there's no power behind it. See what the verse says? With great power, they were preaching the resurrection of Jesus. We want our gatherings, our interactions, our relationships to bleed with grace, with forgiveness, with joy. We want to be marked not by greed, but with giving, not by bitterness, but by forgiveness, not by a critical spirit, but with thankfulness. We must adorn our doctrine with devotion. We must adorn our doctrine with devotion. The two have to go together. They must. Have you ever met a person who believes all the right things, but then their life is totally off? And you're like, I don't, I don't even know what to do with this person, right? I always say, like, my pastoral spidey sense goes off. It's like, like, something's off here. They say all the right things, but they're just not nice to people. Like, what's wrong here? And we know it's just not the way it's supposed to be. And we want to be a culture where, no, the two come together. Gospel doctrine without gospel culture is nothing. It's power. We must combine the two. So we've looked at the what of community. We covenant to build a gospel culture. We've looked at the why. Now we can look at the how. How do we do this at Emmaus? And some of the challenges, I want to point out some of the challenges we face as well. We ask covenant members to do a few simple things. If you've been here for a while, you know, all, you know this. I just want to remind you of what we do. First, we ask you to regularly attend on Sunday mornings. Sunday morning is our most important meeting where we remind ourselves not only of what we believe, but how we are to act. The sermons up here should be doctrine and life. This is how you put it into practice. We, we are together here learning together how to walk in gospel doctrine and gospel culture. And this weekly meeting is not our idea. Again, the Bible is very clear that being a Christian means gathering on Sunday with God's people in the flesh. Some people ask, why can't we do it at home? Why can't we commune with God on the mountain, on the paddleboard, at the beach, wherever we might be? Well, you can commune with God there, but it's not church. It's not the gathering of God's people. 
In the scriptures, the early church devoted themselves to gathering together on Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. We just got back from Israel. That's a huge break from Judaism. Because Jews celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday. And we witnessed that. And to have the Christians begin gathering on Sunday would have marked them out as very distinct. They gathered together on Sunday because they're reminding themselves of the resurrection life that is theirs. In Acts 20, verse 7, it says the church gathered together today. The church gathered together on the first day of the week. In 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Paul says on the first day of the week, each person is to put something aside for the collection. It's very evident that the early Christians were gathering together on Sunday, and that marked them out as distinct. They were celebrating the resurrection life of Jesus. The first Christians gathered together on Sunday to sing to one another, to hear from God's word, to take communion, to remind themselves of the gospel, and to embody the gospel to one another. We seek to copy the early church. So we call you to come Sunday mornings because that's what the early church did. That's what the New Testament commands us to do. And we want you to make it a regular pattern. It's okay if you're out of town and if you're sick. But generally, we want you to be here because that's how we come together and we practice that gospel doctrine and that gospel culture. We come together on Sunday morning. Second, if you're a member here, we ask you to join a community group. We call them community groups because we realize that Sunday mornings are central with the size of this church, of modern-day churches. They're not built well for developing the deep and meaningful relationships that are covenant outlines. We read in the early church that they gathered together in the temple and they scattered into homes. Acts 2.46, they attended the temple together and they broke bread in their homes. They're gathering together and they're scattering to their homes. That's what we do in community groups. We want community groups to be a time where we confess sin, pursue peace, lovingly receive correction, practice health in our relationships, and live wisely with our Christian freedom. It is really here that we often practice this gospel culture. Third, we ask you to be generous with all that God has given you. That includes your finances, your giftings, your time, your abilities. We are constantly in need of more volunteers. We need more greeters at the door. We need more kids workers. We need more people to serve us in music. We need more people to help with Care Portal and our commission. And here are a few challenges for you. If you're serving once a month in a position where you can attend most of the service, I would challenge you to also serve in a place, like kids, where you need extra helpers and you don't get to go to the service. So you can serve where you can hear the service, but then there's times where you have to serve where you don't get to hear the service. And we need more workers in those places where actually you're, you're separate from the service. Second, if all your service is directed at the church, consider helping more with things in our commission. We're going to talk about that next week. Think in terms of outward-facing evangelism, care portal, our missionaries. How are we supporting people not just in our community, but serving those outside of our community? I think we could do more work on that. Tyler's going to talk about that next week. And we want to provide more opportunities for us to be out in the community and share the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Now, in reality, we recognize there's a lot of challenges to doing these things, to covenanting together to build this gospel culture. We never said it would be easy, but it is life-giving. It is life-giving. It takes commitment. So I've identified four challenges that we all face in doing this. I'm just going to run through these briefly. First, there's the challenge of time. The challenge of time. There are a million things telling us we need to give it attention. 
Family, work, sports, hobbies, projects, yard work, downtime, vacation. I could go on and on and on. In short, everyone's pressed for time. We're all busy. But here's the reality. You don't have time to not have time for community. <laughs> you don't have time to not have time for community. Your life is short. And we are on our way to the promised land. And we are wandering in the wilderness. And we need to be together on this. Or else, we're going to fall down and die. You don't have time to not have time for community. Your life will be over before you know it. And on your deathbed, do you want to look back and say, I devoted all this time to these other things, but I didn't devote myself to God. I don't want to say that. You don't want to say that. You have to make time for it. You have to carve out time and say, no, we have covenanted together with these people. We have committed to this. Therefore, we will go. Even when it's hard, even when you don't feel like it. And let, let's be real with one another, right? There are many times where we don't feel like it. There are times where I'm like, I don't want to go to community groups. I'm tired. I'm worn out from the week. I'm always glad I went. I'm always glad I went. And that sort of commitment over and over again builds a pattern in your life. A second challenge is people. People. The reality is that in a church, there will be different people with different personalities, different interests, different quirks, different concerns, different passions, different political viewpoints, different health concerns. It can be difficult to commit ourselves to people so unlike us. John Ortberg said this, everyone is normal until you get to know them. We're all weird in our own way. And if you stick around long enough, the weirdness will begin to show. As I said earlier, the first few months are nice, and then you get to know people. You're like, ah, do I really want to covenant with these people? Guess what? Every church is weird. <laughs> All people have weird stuff. So we're coveting, covenanting with one another to learn from one another because we are all different. Jesus said this, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? That's a hard word, isn't it? It's easy to love people who are like us, who love us, who like us. And Jesus says, what benefit is that to you? For even those who don't love Christ do that. So what do we want to do to be distinct here? We love people who are unlike us, who are different than us. And actually, uh, this is what 1 Corinthians get at. We learn from people who are different, that have different giftings, who have different struggles from us, and we come together. That's the unity in the diversity that the New Testament church paints. That's what's so important for us, to come together with people that are different from you. And I'm talking different in terms of age, in terms of jobs, in terms of where you're from. All, there's so many differences. But we can come together because we all love Jesus. A third challenge is unreal expectations. When I talk about community, some of you may have thought, hey, that sounds great, but in reality, I've rarely found these sort of relationships in the church, including this church. I love what you're saying, but I'm lonely here. Like, I'm sitting here, and I'm lonely. I don't, have I don't have the friends that I want. But may maybe there are some unreal expectations. We can be committed to one another without all of us being best friends. Can I say that? Is that okay? We can be committed to one another without us all being best friends. We can't, I mean, look at the size of this room. We can't all be best friends with one another. It's nearly impossible. It is impossible. I'll just say it. It's impossible. So 
when you come into a church, what are your expectations? In addition, based on your season in life, relationships might be, look different. So maybe, you know, you're, you're in college or you remember college days and you had all, these time, all this time to hang out with people. People's season life is different now. It, it, you, you do have to carve out that time to get together in different seasons of life. And so just recognize what season you're in and recognize you're not going to be best friends with everyone, but you can still have that covenant commitment with one another. And, and, and don't be upset about that, but actually have realistic expectations stepping in. The greater the ideal, the greater the disappointment. Fourth challenge is maybe the most important, and then I'll have my conclusion. Sin and the satanic forces. The challenge that faces us is our own sin and Satan himself. If God created us for community and Jesus redeemed us for community, then what do you think Satan will attack? What do you think he will do to us? What will he try to do? He will try to drive a wedge. You know, in some Baptist churches, you have that like aisle down the middle. You've got the people on this side and the people on that side. And often that's what Satan loves to do. He'll divide the people of God. It's because this is precisely where the devil loves to shoot his arrows. What this means is that the Sunday morning decision is a spiritual warfare decision. Some pastors say Sunday morning is a Saturday night decision. That's spiritual warfare right there. Am I going or am I not going? We all have to make that decision on Saturday night, usually, because we're determining how late are we staying up, when are we getting up, are we getting ready to go? And honestly, your own sin and the spiritual powers are going to say, ah, just don't go. Because they know this is where you find life. The should we go to community group question is not just another event to decide on. Ah, oh, we've done a ton of things this week. Let's just, let's just not go. I think that's spiritual warfare again. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to say like, oh, if you miss one, you're a terrible, terrible person. No, I understand there's reasons to miss. But just be committed. Be committed. We all want community. Very few people are willing to commit to get community. But isn't community a byproduct of commitment? It's a byproduct of commitment. Let me conclude. The reality is there are some people in this room who came here to find this type of community I've described but haven't found it. I was thinking of Naomi and Ruth, or Naomi and Elimelech in the book of Ruth, where they're starving in the land that was supposed to be filled with bread. Bethlehem, the land of bread. And they're starving. There's a famine there. Maybe you feel like that here. You're starving. This is supposed to be the place where you get community. You haven't gotten it. And the reality is we don't do this perfectly. We don't. No church does it perfectly. We, we want to grow in this, but we don't do it perfectly. And we nev actually, we never will. There's some real expectation. We will never do community perfectly. I'm sorry just to state it that way. And no church will. You will be disappointed in us. But we, we, we strive to do better by the grace of God. But you shouldn't be here because we do this perfectly. You shouldn't. You are here because someone else has loved you. You are here because someone else has always found joy in you. You are here because someone else has always been patient with you. 
You are here because someone else has always been kind to you. Someone else has always been good to you. Someone else has always been faithful and gentle with you. Someone else, as the scriptures say, has always been your friend. That person is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners. We commit to one another because Jesus has committed himself to us. His commitment to us led him to the cross. And when our true self emerges, when our lack of commitment to Jesus reveals itself, what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, okay, you're pushing away, so I'm pushing away. He draws nearer to us. Isn't that amazing? That's the gospel. When we give him the stiff arm, we're like, nope, don't want any part of this anymore. He gathers us even more. He pursues us even more. That's the good news of the gospel. He draws near to you, and he knows you, and knows you better than you know yourself. He says, I want that relationship with you. I want that. In John 15, Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, but I've called you friends. I've called you friends. One author, Kelly Capick, talks about how when he goes out to speak, he will often ask, did you know that God loves you? And everyone's like, yeah, uh-huh, I know that. I know that God loves you, loves me. Then he will say, but do you believe that God likes you? And he said, often he will see tears begin to form in people's eyes. They believe God loves them, but they're not sure he likes them. Isn't that an interesting distinction? God loves you, and he likes you. (laughs) He takes great joy in you. He draws near to you. He has invited you to his table. And it's not because of what you've done, but because of who he is. He is our friend on our best days and on our worst days. He is our friend through the thick and thin. He is our friend even when we're a terrible friend to him. As Tyler said earlier, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful to us. He has made a covenant commitment to us, and he draws us near. This is the ultimate reason we build a gospel culture, because Jesus Christ has loved us to the end, always and forever, and his love never ceases for you. So we gather together and say, Let's show that off to one another, and let's show that off to the world. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that Jesus Christ has loved us in this way, that he has come on our worst days and said, I want a relationship with you. And the Father said, I will send the Son on their behalf. And now the Spirit fills us. Oh, so God, would you stir that reality again in our hearts, that we would believe the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us by the Spirit to walk in the ways that you have called us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come now to our time of communion, which you look at the word is based on this term community. We have communion with God, and therefore we have community with one another. Our union with God is the basis for our union with one another. So as we come and even eat from this table, we are declaring something true about what Jesus Christ has done for us, but he also has created a body, the church, right? He is the head, and we are his body. And so as we eat of his body, he's actually creating us as a body that is knit together. And the scriptures talk about there's different parts of the body, and we actually come together. So as we take of this, you notice the union that we have, we're all taking of the same Jesus Christ, but we're all different people. 
We're all different people. And Jesus Christ is saying in this table, you are my one people of God. With all your diversity, with all your quirks, with all your sins, you are mine and I am yours. And he calls us to be unified, to be together. And that's why this time is for Christians who've been baptized and who have covenanted themselves with a body of believers. It's for those who acknowledge that only through Christ can true union come between God and man and between one another. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he was with his disciples and he took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Notice he's with his disciples, he's with his community. He's like, this is my body broken for you. And he also took the wine and said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We do this in remembrance of our Savior. So may us come and eat of Jesus Christ, who brings true union between us and God and between one another. At Emmaus, we start with the first aisle and we, aisle, seat, I don't know, what, where are we right now? We, we come down the first uh, aisle here to your right and then we go uh, row by row and we take of Jesus Christ. Come and eat.